Okay, so turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this evening. Genesis chapter 1. If you are uh, new to the scriptures, uh, Genesis 1 is the very first book and first chapter of the Bible. And uh, that's where we're going to be taking our text from this evening. Um, We're in a series called Abundant Valley, and what we're doing is we're really attempting to begin the conversation in our church around material, around wealth, around beauty, around dreaming with God, and around our vocation. So like young people tend to do, we bit off a little bit more than we can chew, and we're working our way through all of it. Um, See, one of the realities of moving here to Newburgh and living here, and I'm sure many of you who live here know this already, but this valley that we live in is one of the most fertile valleys in the entire world. I was like looking up Googling, like most fertile valleys in the whole world, and Willamette Valley is like number three up there. Um, and so rather than feeling bad about all this abundance that we have, I think that there is a role for us to play in enjoying what we have here, living in constant gratitude because of it, looking for ways to increase and flourish and care for what we've been given. We're going to talk a little bit more about that specifically in a couple weeks. And then to leverage the privilege that we have for kingdom expansion. There's a lot of conversation around privilege today, and for the most part, there's one camp that says, it's not privilege, I earned it. There's another camp that says, give me your privilege. But what we are called to do as followers of Jesus is to steward the privilege so that it benefits the kingdom. And that's what this series is all about. So, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Let's read this. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Everybody say, very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. Tonight I want to talk about beauty. Um, I I want to talk about what beauty is. I want to talk about why we need beauty. Um, Because beauty was what God rested in on the sixth day. It was very good. What is he doing? He's taking it in. He's enjoying it. And because I think that beauty plays an important role in our relationship to God, a more important role than I think the church has really ever realized, and I want us to be a church that realizes it. Now, full disclosure before we jump into things, I'm a four on the Enneagram. Does anybody know the Enneagram just by like a show of hands, some of you guys? Okay, if you're unfamiliar with the Enneagram, here's what that means. It's like a personality sort of, you know, emotionality sort of assessment, If you're a four, it means that the driving force of your life is the love of beauty. I'm like beauty crazy. Just ask my wife. It's what I spend all my time thinking about. It's what I go after. I don't buy something unless it's beautiful, down to like our hose. The other day I got a new hose for the house, and she's like, you had to get the beautiful one, didn't you? I'm like, yes, I have to get the beautiful one. I'm a four. What else am I supposed to do, right? I'm the kind of guy who buys old cars that don't work just because they're beautiful. I'm glad that I'm not in like, there's some, is there any fours in the house? Um, When we uh, remodeled our house, I I was like, plumbing, electrical, I'm like, I want the beautiful stuff. What are we going to put in this house to make it look awesome? We have this uh, spiky kind of bush outside one of our windows. It's like right outside our kitchen window. And the other day, we're we're doing some uh, yard work. And I come to this spiky bush, and I think, um, oh, God, this is so ugly. We've got to get this bush out of here. 
And I'm like, why would anybody put a bush like this right here next to the house? And my wife, this is, this is the difference right here. She goes, so somebody can't climb in the kitchen window. <laughs> I'm like, uh, what? She's like, yeah, it's spiky so that people can't climb in. I'm like, yeah, safety doesn't ever come into this mind or heart. It's all beauty, okay? I just remember being like eight years old and walking around different of my friends' homes and, and just thinking, what an interesting roof line they have here. And uh, wow, I love those windows. Lots of natural light. Like, what other eight-year-old is thinking about this stuff? Um, so whether it's clothing or design or landscapes, I just love beauty. Some people dream of being like a doctor or an engineer. Like, my internal mantra as a 16-year-old was this, I want to create a beautiful life. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if it's going to be productive, but it's going to be beautiful, right? Now, um, to be honest, I think that it's partly for this reason in my life personally that I never connected with the church as a young man. The church is not particularly known for creating beauty, especially evangelicalism. Um, we are so utilitarian, right? With the, within the church, we don't have a value for things that don't have a utility, it's like, you spent your money on what? What does that do? It doesn't do us any good. We don't want it. But this has not always been the case. In fact, if you go to Europe, and many of you who have been there, you know that if you want to see the best art in Europe, you don't need to go to a museum. You just need to go to a cathedral. They're packed. They're full. They're chock full of just some of the most beautiful art in the world. But what I'm concerned with this evening is recapturing the view of the church to see beauty as a road to God. I want us to be a church where, where we see beauty as important because it leads us to him. Not everybody has to paint or sing or write or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But I think there is a mandate for us to revel in beauty, for us to delight in beauty and ultimately worship because of it. Now, th does that word feel a little bit ambiguous to you? I feel like whenever I talked about like my philosophy classes in college, like, like we're going to talk about beauty today. By the end of the class, I'm like, I don't even know what beauty is. Is, is that beautiful? Or was, that's not what you're talking about right there, right? What is beauty? What is beauty? Well, Thomas Aquinas, he said this, beauty is wholeness, it's harmony, and it's radiance. So you think about that, and, and just think of maybe the most beautiful thing you can think of. Maybe it's a person in your life. When I think of the most beautiful thing, I think of my wife. Uh, I know, right answer. Um, or, or, you know, you think about that car that you really love or the home that you live in, or you think about the view that you, you hike to, and you think about that and you're like, yes, it has wholeness, it has harmony, it has radiance. And, and I think what Aquinas was really getting at is that it has line, it has shape, it has form and color. It, it, it's that, that garden that you walk into and it's just full of these balanced colors that are just pleasing to the eye. Um, it, it's, if you're like me, it's the monochromatic blues within a faded pair of jeans. It's like, whoa, that's enough for me. I just love that. I know it's weird. Um, it's like a well-designed space with light. You're like, oh, when, when, as the light goes over this way, it casts this kind of shadow that's just, it is line as shape, as color and form. And in Newburgh, it's that light that emanates in a sunset, that reddish yellow cresting on every hill from here to the coastline. Do you guys just, I know Chad and Lauren, you got the view of that. That's like, boom, you're locked into that view. But just like gorgeous light that we have here in this town. But, but beauty is also more than that, is it not? It's more than just this kind of um, aesthetic design principle, right? Really beautiful things seem to have a transcendence about them, don't, don't they? 
Uh, my, my wife, um, she loves uh, Canon and D by Pac Bell. And uh, the, just this last, a couple, last night, yesterday, we were just listening to all the different versions of Canon and D and just like, oh, it's like, it's like the most transcendent sounds. And you think about this guy, you know, hundreds of years ago, never having heard this before and just going, oh, what if I did this? And then I, what if I did this? Just this, this sound coming out of him. Or um, how about Caravaggio? Uh, recently, I've been reading about Caravaggio. Uh, this is a painting that he painted, and all of his paintings have this incredibly dramatic light about them. The, the, people said in his time um, that his paintings were nothing short of divinely inspired. So the way that people were talking about the scriptures, that's how they talked about this gentleman's paintings, this Italian master. And this is a, a depiction of Paul being knocked off of his horse um, on the road to Damascus, just a, an amazing so much movement and so much energy and it's just like wow it just is connecting you with a deeper meaning and a deeper purpose within that painting beauty it connects so deep within us at times it's all subjective at some level what you find beautiful you find beautiful but that moment when you just connect with something that's so beautiful it hits such a deep spot in our hearts that we think it must originate from an equally deep place it must come from just an incredibly deep place. Beauty is the word that we use for experienced goodness. We're like, oh, that was a beautiful meal. And it should move us to what's good and true. Because of this, beauty matters. Beauty is really, really important. It's something that causes us to dream of excellence. I was just talking to Lorna, this is like last week, and she was saying how when you walk through a European city and you see the architecture, you're just so inspired to do something beautiful. How many of you guys have ever had this experience? You're watching Chef's Table. <laughs> you're watching Chef's Table, and you're like, I'm called to be a chef. <laughs> You're like, I'm giving my life. I'm, going, I'm moving to France. I'm becoming a chef. Like, that's me. Every time I watch Chef's, watch chef's Table, I, there will be a, a point I cry. I will cry every time I'm like, that's the creative struggle of a four right there. I'm just like, oh, I want to do something beautiful. I see this incredible thing done, and I'm like, I am going to be excellent. I'm going to do something beautiful for God. It's these moments of experiencing his goodness through beauty that actually make some of the most significant progress in our lives spiritually. Have you ever had that just raptured up in just beauty and you're just like, oh, I want to give everything to you. Maybe it's a time in worship. Maybe it's a time reading something, a quote that you're just like, oh, I just want to give everything to you. Here's what A.W. Tozer says, and this is maybe like my favorite quote of his ever. He says this, there is a difference between the theological knowledge and spiritual experience. The difference between knowing God by hearsay and knowing him by acquaintance. We Christians should watch lest we lose the O oh from our hearts. There is real danger these days that we shall fall victim to the prophets of poise and the purveyors of tranquility and our Christianity be reduced to a mere evangelical humanism that is never disturbed about anything nor overcome by any trances of thought and mountings of mind. Churches should keep always before them the knowledge that progress can be made only by the O's and the ahs of spirit-filled hearts. These are the pain cries of the fruitful mother about to give birth. See, beauty, it, it can stun us. 
it puts us in awe and it can, can, at the best times in life, it can connect us with him and give birth in our hearts and character to what is good and what is true. That's what it was intended to do. But maybe you're sitting here and you're an astute student of things that are beautiful and you're like, but isn't there a danger of beauty? Isn't there a danger of beauty? There is. Flip over to uh, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Genesis chapter 3, there's a different thing that happens. Many of you guys know there's a serpent who tells a different narrative, other thoughts than the thoughts of God. And Adam and Eve end up agreeing with his thoughts. But here's what happens. Genesis chapter 3, verse 2. The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice this. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. I want to put forth to you this evening that the first temptation ever came in part from beauty that promised too much. Beauty that promised too much. What what is happening here? It's Eve looking for creation, not the creator, but material to do too much. And this is is the danger of beauty. Some things are so pleasing to the eye that they make us think that they are divine within themselves. She's like, I know what God said, but wow, that is pleasing to the eye. And and that is, I think it's going to be desirable for gaining wisdom. I'm going to... I'm going to abandon this over here for this this beauty. Uh, In the 8th century, the Eastern Orthodox branch of Christianity gave history the word word iconoclasm. Have you guys ever heard that, iconoclasm? Um, It comes from the Greek word icon smashing. I think we have some images from this time period, just uh, Christians going into uh, cathedrals, going into churches, and taking art, these beautiful icons of saints and, and of different Bible stories, and removing them and throwing them into the fire, smashing them, getting rid of them. Um, Icons were used to depict apostles and Jesus as a way of using art and beauty to represent their traits and their character. But there was a strain within the church that feared that this would lead to worship of the beauty itself, worship of the art itself, so they destroyed them. Here's another uh, photo of just completely like cutting the faces off of these uh, icons. And, And this fear, this iconoclasm, is actually somewhat well-founded within the New Testament. Romans chapter one, Paul traces all depravity of humanity back to a simple distinction, and here's what he says. He says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Whenever you look and you see idolatry, what is at the heart of idolatry? It's making a decision to worship the creation, elevating the creation above the creator. Creation was intended to be a road to him, but instead, many people, they see what's beautiful in front of them, and they stop there. This is using beauty to do too much and mistaking it for who should actually be worshipped. And though this is an ancient uh, you know, truth, 
It's a very modern temptation as well. As I was thinking about this week, um, there was so many things that came up that we have examples of this in our culture. But I, I think this is one thing that social media primarily has revealed in our hearts. Uh, in his book, Empires of Illusion, Chris Hedges, he's a, um, an author, he shows us how we tend to use beauty to get what we really want in life, which is attention from others. He says this, through the image of beauty, the problems of existence are domesticated and controlled. We measure our lives by those we see on the screen. We seek to be like them. We emulate their look and behavior. We escape the chaos of real life through fantasy. We are all becoming performance artists in an ongoing show. Performance artists, like if you could have like when you're four years old, you're like, you know what, I want to be a performance artist trying to get the attention of others through a social media feed. It's like nobody wishes for that, right? Nobody plans for that. Yet our personal, our personal online show has essentially caused us to use beauty to achieve what we really want which is the love of others and approval from our peers. See, and it makes sense in our culture because when you get rid of the idea that there is a God, then we are left to create value and worth and meaning by the approval of others because if we can't connect to God, then the next best thing is to be connected to people. The new salvation is public approval and the new hell is anonymity. That's what we're living in. That's the culture that we're living in. And don't you see it? What, it's the same thing from the garden. Here's what it is. It's using beauty once again to save ourselves just like Eve made the same decision. This is called idolatry and it wreaks havoc in our lives. Next slide. The more we allow idols to run our lives, the more anxiety we live in because we need to protect and feed them with our time, money, and attention. The more anxious we become, the more we must control circumstances and people to maintain control, and thus the less we love. This is not the way that beauty was intended to be from the very beginning. Beauty is designed to, like a diamond, reflect and refract all the many facets of his beauty and his character. Every beautiful thing is a way of God saying, once again, taste and see that I am good. Taste and see that I am good. Saints Hill, we are going to be a church that has a biblical theology of beauty. We have a biblical theology of beauty around here. Genesis 2 verse 9 says this, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Notice this, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And isn't that interesting, the order there? Order in Hebrew writing is incredibly important. And right here, we have a, a very interesting order. The tree's uh, visual qualities are actually put before the tree's utility. Isn't that fascinating? Scholars for years have been frustrated by this passage. Why on earth would the author of Genesis put the tree's beauty before its food? Why? What does this mean? The beauty of trees are listed ahead of their usefulness. Could it be because for humans to thrive, we must have beauty, and that beauty may be just as important to our well-being as food? Could it be? Or how about this? The very first time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Bible, look what his purpose is. 
This is in Exodus 31. It says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, from the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage all kinds of crafts. So pause for a second. We tend to think that the Spirit is given to us so that we can do supernatural things. And that's true. God wants to invade, heaven, invade earth with heaven through us, and he gives us the Spirit to do so. But notice the very first time a human is given the spirit of God, what is the purpose? To make art, to do beautiful things, to cut different metals and stones, and to put them together to do all kinds of crafts. It's to bring about excellence and beauty through art and the church. Where has that spirit gone? Where has that spirit gone in our church? Two more passages in case you're not buying it. Psalm 34 verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you know what that means? Every time you have a good meal, it's supposed to make you go, oh, God is so good. <laughs> that happens to me all the time over at Chad and Lauren's. I'm, I'm eating the homemade ice cream and the rhubarb crumble, and I'm just like, I am tasting it. I'm seeing that he is good. Wow. Uh, Colossians 1 says this, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What these passages mean together is that God is the first to invite us to experience him through material he created for our enjoyment. We cannot do the sacred secular thing when it comes to material. He designed it to lead us to say, oh, he is so good, and he's holding all of this together. So to end, three thoughts for you this evening. Three thoughts. If you're taking notes, write these down. If you're not taking notes, write these down. The first is this. Beauty is intended to lead us to worship. Beauty is intended to lead us to worship. The combatant to beauty doing too much or believing that it can do too much in our lives is having a correct theology of enjoyment. In your theology, you're like, yeah, I got a theology about providence. Yeah, I got a theology about sexuality. But do you have a theology about enjoyment? You need to create a the- a, in your theology tool belt one for enjoyment. Having a theology of enjoyment comes from having a theology of his goodness. Without uh, a theology of his goodness, you will never get to a theology of his enjoyment. Of enjoyment. Without a belief in his goodness, enjoyment will always feel like you're getting away with something. And that's what leads us to hide what we have from God. How many of you have ever been in this situation? You don't have to raise your hands, but just identify internally. Or maybe just smile at me. I appreciate that. How many of you have ever had this happen? Something great happens in your life and you're like, oh, that's awesome. Oh, wait, but I bet something bad's gonna happen soon then, you know, because I got this new thing and, and that, I got that job and, and we, we bought that house, but I better be watching my back because God may try to teach me a lesson by like taking it away from me or something like that. Is anybody, like anybody, anybody? That's okay, just me. All right, um, it's like this. I, my dog, um, I have my dog's best interest in mind most of the time and uh, I, we go to the store and we spend money getting her bones. And we spend money getting her things to chew on and play with. But you know what happens whenever I get, bring her a toy? She takes it and she goes and she hides it. And if I come over and I stand over, particularly like this, she's like this. 
you know, stay away from my toy. I'm like, did you, did you forget? Did I just gave that to you? And I don't think you know this, but I was at Critter Cabana earlier, and that thing cost me $20. So yeah, I wanted you to have it. Many of us, we treat God as though he's like the guy who pours out blessing, but just watch out. He's going to snatch that from you, and he's going to teach you a lesson or something like that. When we enjoy what has been made correctly, we don't turn inward and go, okay, okay, that's mine, that's mine now. We go, oh, that is so good, God. You are so good. And because you're my ultimate prize, if this thing stays in my life, great. If it goes, it doesn't matter. It's just revealed your character, and it's drawn me into relationship. How that is the way that I want to see everything in life. Do you guys remember the story of the woman who poured out the perfume on Jesus? Isn't that a great story? It's like this this is like a year's, it's like $50,000 perfume. And she's just like, shh. And do you remember what the disciples said? They said, this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. <laughs> I know why you're laughing. Oh, gosh. Uh, okay, so this weekend, uh, <laughs> we are going to get our house painted. It's like peeling. It's, it was one of my desires, you know? I'm like the four on the Enneagram. I'm like, I want to have a pretty house. And so um, anyway, we're getting our house painted uh, sometime this summer, and we have this guy come over to, to check the paint out and to tell us, you know, how much it's going to cost and, and all that. And he says to us, he goes... Um, at the very end of it, you know, he says, oh, here's how, how much it's going to be. And we're like, it was cheaper than we thought. We're like, oh, great, yeah, we'll, we'll pay that. Like, when can you do it? And he finds out that I work at a church. And he says, oh, well, you work at a church? Well, why are you paying to have your house painted then? <laughs> and I was like, well, because it's peeling all over the place. It's like, you know, we live across from an elementary school. Kids are going to come over and eat the paint chips. It's like, we've got to get this thing taken care of. <laughs> So he goes, <laughs> he goes, well, you could take that money. You could give it to a homeless person. I'm like, yeah, yeah I could do that, um, but I want to paint my house. And I'm, I, you don't know me, and <laughs> I, give a lot, I give money away in other places of my life. And he goes, and uh, he's like, oh, wow, well, it's kind of selfish, don't you think? <laughs> and my wife is like, no. And <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I go, I'm like, okay, here, here's the deal. Here's how this works. I'm going to pay you to paint my house. You're going to take that money, and you can give it to any homeless person you come across. How about that? That way, it's a win-win-win. You get to feel good about yourself, because obviously you need to do that to feel good about yourself. And I get my house painted, and the homeless guy gets, you know, a chunk of change. Wouldn't that be great? He's like, oh, well, I don't know about that, right? <laughs> okay. The disciples, get back to the disciples. The disciples, all they had was a transactional view of the world and of worship. The only value of the perfume was the monetary value that it offered. If our worship, or if someone else's worship, we, we deem it to be too extravagant then we view worship as a transaction rather than a response. If you view worship as, a, as a, you're, oh, it's, that's too much, that's too extravagant, that could have been sold and given to the poor, I'm only thinking in utility, 
then you view life as a transaction with God rather than a response to the goodness that he's just poured out without restraint. If you believe that God is stingy, then you probably don't want to pour out the whole bottle of perfume. You're like, oh, okay, that's enough. Let's be rational about it, right? It's $50,000. This woman's act had no inherent value because it didn't produce anything. But maybe the lesson for us is that some things exist not to be used, but to be adored. Maybe there are some things that God has made that their usefulness isn't the first thing that was on his mind. It's, yeah, there were trees in Eden and they were pleasing to the eye and they were also good for food. This is why God invites us to praise him, invites us into adoration. Why does he want our praise? Because praise, when we recognize him through praise, it's what consummates our enjoyment of him. This is, I think, my favorite C.S. Lewis quote of all time. I mean, this is just stunning. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise doesn't merely express, but it completes the enjoyment. It is not out of compliment that lovers tell one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever but we shall then know that these are the same thing. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Just get the phone out right now. Snap a photo. I know you want to. God is not in competition with beauty, no more than a painter is in competition with her painting. He made beautiful things so that when we go, God, thank you for this, it consummates the enjoyment. It fills us up and says, oh, you are better than I thought. So this is our posture, Psalm 16, verse two. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. A refusal to split God's good creation away from him is this posture. Whatever good I have, it is because of you. Whatever good is in my life, it is in you. That is the true heart of worship. So secondly, I want us to be the kind of people who cultivate beauty in our lives, who care about beauty. As people who are in Christ, who, may I remind you, holds all beauty together. Think about that. We're in Christ, and in him all things are holding together. Yes, beautiful things. Then Christians should lead the way in quality and in beauty in all parts of their lives. I'm going to talk about this in a couple weeks. It's a reflection of our royalty. There's a spiritual reality. Okay, maybe I'll talk about it this week. There's a spiritual reality that we have been made sons and daughters of the king, therefore royalty within the house of God, and that spiritual reality was not intended to remain invisible, it was intended to actually be expressed in the natural. We're supposed to be able to look at Christians and go, oh, did you see what excellence they have in their life? Do you see what beauty they live their life with? Do you see what fruit of the spirit just is profuse coming out of their, their character? They must be Christians. I have a number uh, of designer friends who use mood boards. You guys ever heard of a a mood board before? 
All of you who are like artsy, you know what a mood board is. I think we have a photo of one right there. So um, a mood board is a type of collage consisting of images, text, and samples of objects in a composition, and it's intended to evoke or project a particular style or concept. So designers use mood boards to kind of give, give a design direction for a project they're working on. Um, we have it for our house, you know, okay, we want that, th to have these materials in it, we want it to look this way, we want it to have these colors, that sort of a thing. And my thinking is, as I was thinking about this uh, this week, I was thinking, well, what if you created a mood board for Jesus? Uh, like, what if you had a page in your journal or you had a piece of paper or a poster in your house or, or a note on your phone of all the beautiful things that you see or read or hear? You're just like, I'm, I'm gonna put them all together and I'm gonna create a mood board around the kingdom. Stories of what God has done. Scriptures that just strike your heart. You're like, I gotta write that down. I'm gonna draw this little picture next to it because of that. Or, or maybe you're, you're on a walk and you're just taking photos of things that are beautiful and you put all these things together and every time you look at that page do you know what that mood board does it moves you to the mood of the kingdom which is this oh oh that is so good uh, imagine what you would cultivate because of it what beautiful things would come from, from your life then if you were constantly meditating on the goodness and the beauty of God that he's created around you spoken into your life w what if you did that what if you had a mood board for Jesus I think that we want, we want to be the kind of church that we keep at the forefront his goodness. We don't feel bad for it. Guilt does not produce the kingdom. Gratitude does. So I'm not going to feel guilty for these things. I'm going, to, I'm going to actually put them together and bring them before my mind so that whenever I see them, they prophesy to me about who you are and what you intend in my life. There was a season in our lives um, where... Uh, we were paying off all of our student debt. Any student ever done that before? Anybody in the middle of that? You're just trying to get rid of the debt. Um, and we, we, took a, we took a year to just get rid of all this debt. And when we did that, we said, a, we said no to a lot of things that we wanted. And uh, there was this painting that we wanted, uh, super bad. It was actually, we were living in Portland at the time, but it was over at Art Elements. And there was this painting that we were just like dreaming of having, or like, you know, we were both very beauty-centric, obviously. And uh, we're like, oh, I just want that painting. But we said, no, we are paying off our debt. We are not going to get that painting. Okay, so we just said, no, 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 no. And we said, you know what? How about this? How about whenever we're done paying off our debt, we'll go get the painting? And uh, so sure enough, we got, we got done with the debt. And a few weeks after that, we're like, we are driving to Newburgh, and we are getting that painting. How many of you guys understand that painting means a lot more to me than just having a nice painting in my house? That painting speaks to me about God's faithfulness financially over that year where we had dedicated ourselves to pay off our debt. And every time I look at that painting, it's not just like, oh, that's a nice painting on the wall. It's prophecy. It's prophesying about the good that God intends to bring about in my life so that I don't forget it. When you walk through your house, do you have objects and items? Do you have things in your life that prophesy to you about God's goodness? See, in the church, we tend to have this view of material as though it's this like, yeah, I guess we got, we're really materialistic, and I know I shouldn't be so materialistic. What if you, okay, maybe you should get rid of some things, but what if you had some things in your life that actually held a spiritual place that drew your heart in trust every time you, you looked at them, every time you enjoyed them? I think that's what God intends. Lastly, allow his beauty to transform you. Allow his beauty to transform you. Uh, Philippians 4.8 says this. 
Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the peace of God will be with you. As you contemplate and you think about the beauty of God, you think about his goodness, what is it doing? It's actually connecting you with his peace. It's connecting you with his peace. He is in the beauty and he's waiting there for you to encounter him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate, think, dwell on the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So get this. This passage is just so stunning. You want to become like him? Gaze at him. You want to become like him? Contemplate him. You want to become like him? Make sure that all of your thoughts, there isn't a thought in your mind or heart that is not in his. Every day, you come to the text, you come to the scriptures, you come to the Holy Spirit, and you say, God, I want to gaze at you again so that I can become like you. This is what his beauty does. It transforms us. It changes us. So that when we choose to have a life that cultivates beauty, a life that focuses on beauty, it actually makes us more and more like him. Let's stand together as we close.